0: Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Strevens. Joining me on the show this afternoon was Rod Maldaner. Uh, Rod is a news cameraman and producer with 30 years experience in the field uh, producing and covering stories uh, across North America. Uh, We concluded that he has been shooting news as long as I've been alive. So he obviously had a lot of wisdom had a lot of knowledge and stories to impart to me and to whoever chooses to listen to this episode. So that was great. Uh, Rod is also, uh, was also a cameraman, um, with the Oilers Entertainment Group and the in-house video production that goes on, uh, formerly at, uh, Northlands Coliseum, Skyreach Center, Rexall Place, and now into Rogers Place. So that's interesting too, because that's something that I've been just extremely lucky, uh, to, to have been a part of myself, that's to be a cameraman for the in-house presentation that goes on, um, the in-house video presentation that goes on there. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of cool to talk to the guy who did it first and is still doing it uh, to some degree. Uh, so we, we had a lot to talk about uh, as far as what goes on at Rogers Place and, and with the Oilers past, present, and future. Um, following that, we, we did get into kind of where I assumed we would go. And that was, um, if you listened to an earlier episode I did of this podcast with Rochelle Sufi, she's a video journalist with City News, who covered uh, some pretty disturbing events, I would say, in Pinocchio and in Red Deer uh, this past fall, and Rod was right there with her. Um, So we talked a lot about that. And Rod and I were also side-by-side on a Saturday in late February of this year, covering a protest at the legislature here in Edmonton, uh, where things they didn't get too bad, but it was quite clearly, a uh, two groups that were willing and ready to clash. I would care. Well, I characterize them in this episode is you sort of had the left-wing activists, BLM, um, you know, people of color. Um, there was Antifa presence, uh, sort of counter protesting against, a, an interesting melange, let's say of, let's say white supremacists, right-wingers, uh, pro-freedom pro-liberty people christians whoever you want to call it uh but so there was a lot to talk about you know just purely getting to shoot side by side with rod at that one was was kind of the the pinnacle i guess so far of our relationship together um so yeah a lot of common ground a lot to say and a lot a lot that i really enjoyed getting to to hear and to bounce ideas off him as well he's a sharp guy he, he knows what's up he's seen the times a change in so to speak in, in media and in, in in politics and in the world at large. So really enjoy this one so please enjoy this conversation with Rod Maldaner.
1: Yeah, when we started the scoreboard, um, it was all uh, we would bring a fucking table out and set the machines up and really
0: and oh yeah, like there was no control room. No, no, right? No, no, it was just (laughs) uh, there's and that was pretty like revolutionary, wasn't it, to have in-house video board like that
1: well i think so um the eskimos had one but it was one of those led or not even led sorry the the bulb oh, um wow. things and right. then they ended up getting a video screen as well okay um but that's a good question i don't know if it was revolutionary i, I mean Don was always good about mm-hmm. about being ahead of the curve for sure yeah um so it probably was uh, but it was—I mean—it was so exciting to work on. You know, being okay. a being a fan for all those years, and then being able to fucking be there.
0: Right. Awesome. How many cameras were in the building at that time? Like for a broadcast, couldn't have been that many.
1: Not many at all. There would have been one, two, three, four, five,
0: maybe eight. Okay. Eight back then. Eight, and then could you take? Could they take those feeds? No, no they couldn't no, back no. then.
1: No, because again. Um, there was no agreement set up you know because that's all done through agreements right right um and then we had nothing to offer them you know <laughs> where we're now mm-hmm. you know it is a give and take they take our cameras we take their cameras right um but at the time it was just us you know setting up and mm-hmm. it is what it is you know? so <laughs> live, with uh, it. live with it yeah, yeah. that's Here's awesome learning curve it was great yeah and then over time we got the um we got the scoreboard and yeah Right, kind of right, right. right.
0: There. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't the center hung thing at first? It was just, or it always was that? It
1: was. It, no, it was. We never did have the end ones. Uh, it was a center hung yeah. thing. Actually, Google might have
0: that. Okay. While well, you're looking, I'll do a, yeah. I'll say thanks, Rod yeah. Maldaner, for coming out and doing this. Really appreciate it, man. How many years behind the camera would you say?
1: I have been so, thinking about it, um, I started at Access in 1987 when I was still going to school at Grant McEwen and then I got a full-time job in 1989. Eighty nine. So then I worked there for ten years, Mm. and then I went to City or A Channel when it when it started up. I was the fourth hire at A Channel, so I got in very very early. There's a bit of a story to that too, sure, because I was offered a job in Calgary and turned it down. Oh, wanted to stay in Edmonton.
0: Well, uh, there's (laughs) more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, that's funny because eighty nine was the year I was born. So oh, is that right? You've been shooting as long as I've been alive. Wow.
1: Yeah, and then so I started at started doing news in 19. Uh, then I got so I uh, worked at Access for 10 years, and eight of those shooting. And then when A Channel started in '97 is when mm-hmm. I started okay. news. So I've been I've been doing news for 25 years.
0: Okay. A Channel. They used to do Oilers games too, didn't they, or did they just they did yeah. they,
1: when they started. Yeah, but I think '94 is, is okay. when I. Is, is because we we also did big valley that year as well that's when i started doing big valley okay i did big valley for 25 years as well Oh really yeah um th- with four different companies okay um, i just kept weaseling my way into it because i loved it it was <laughs> yeah it was fucking awesome i called it my working holiday <laughs> pretty you know, you much. Go out there you work your ass off but then you party you know yeah. and as, a, as a young as a you know guy who doesn't get out very often it was great out and
0: <laughs> best of both worlds
1: best of both worlds yeah
0: and when you're in a situation like that with the camera mm. you're just you're a rock star absolutely oh boy yeah. yeah
1: yeah well and it's it's funny because a lot of the same people would buy those the dreaded seats there which oh. was, which i was going to do a documentary on them actually oh and um And one of the things I told him I needed to talk about Mm -hmm. was the dreaded seat uh, situation they have. Because basically what happened there was they had to sell those premium seats in order to stay going in the first five, six, seven, eight years. And um, so it was the repeat customers paying the premium price that got those seats. And these these seats were in a certain... Uh, They were from the stage out. So if you go to a concert, right, the musicians absolutely love the people mm-hmm. up front, who are the fans, who are singing their songs, who are right. in love with the performers, that's where they get their energy from. Totally. And um, with those seats there, mm-hmm. they look out, and especially, except for the last <laughs> three acts of the day, the first three acts of the day, they're empty, right. you know? and the real fans are back, back 500 feet huh. you know and so the performers hated it like you know the the bigger name ones you know they would get into scraps with the security people because they the security they would tell the security people let those people up here right and you know Keith Urban and guys like that security guys ultimately had to just let them up there wow. you know because they need that energy that of those people up front absolutely. so absolutely so Big Valley was faced with a big big conundrum on what to do hmm. with those, because you, know, you, you don't wanna piss off those customers that have been coming for years right. and keeping you afloat. Right. But at the same time, if you look at, they now had competition with Country Thunder in Calgary, okay. which didn't have that. So you know, performers are now having the choice of going to Country Thunder hmm. or Big Valley, and as our spectators hmm. have the choice to go and be up front sure. or be at the back at Big Valley. So, right. so it turned into a pretty big deal. And ultimately,
0: how to get worked out?
1: Well, um, there was uh, an organization called Trickstar who ran okay. the sh- who ran it. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't own it, but they ran it. And Chris Melnichuk, who's very forward-thinking, mm-hmm. you know, smart. Uh, I think he took business I'm not exactly sure, mm. but uh, him and uh, him and his partner mm. were running the place and they were trying to figure out what to do with it so okay. I don't know if you've been out there the last couple of years, but they they put some uh, flatbed trailers out there mm. and then they created an area inside uh, the stage and those trailers that that was standing okay there was standing room you know it's still uh, this they, they were over time they were getting rid of the Seats, you right. know, year after year, they were getting rid of those seats and pushing them back a little bit and, <laughs> and stuff like that, right. trying not to piss too many people off, but still staying viable and, and in right. the current market and the current concert market. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha,
0: gotcha. So, and you're not, I guess that didn't happen this summer, obviously, but you did it right up to the summer. I before. did it right up until
1: the last year they did it. Okay, um, and it's funny that because. Um, again I did it with four different companies and the company that I was with last was uh, Tim Hannes was the okay. owner's name of the company and he had an ongoing contract with these guys with uh, Trickstar star and right. really good relationship you know a bunch of young businessmen from Edmonton cool. who were all in this thing together and and then ultimately the last four years I think I was producing it for Tim right. mm-hmm. and um, so we had a we had a really good thing going we kept evolving it you know um, Chris came up with an idea to change the the screen structure okay. on it and uh, do the the portrait screens etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. Um, and then right out uh, one day I caught wind of the of something weird going on and no actually sorry what happened was I got a call from um, the guys at Trickstar from Chris Malnachuk okay. saying I just wanted to let you know we are out of Big Valley mm-hmm. we are we're done our company's done and it's like holy f- what happened yeah and so what happened was uh the big valley jamboree organization and Camrose sold to country thunder oh. uh which which is a franchise they have i think seven concerts in the states and okay. now three in canada i think it is and so then that okay what does that mean for us right and um ultimately what we found out was because they are a franchise and you mm-hmm. and when you're a franchise that benefits them in bringing talent in sure um, because they can offer the talent these nine or ten dates right, right. so here's ten weekends in a summer if you give us a little bit of a reduced rate right across the board sure. right so and you know another thing is these guys uh, Big Valley for instance pays uh, American funds, oh, you know, well. the, their tickets are Canadian funds, but they pay. Really, you know, they have to all the American sure. acts. They pay. So at one time that was thirty-three percent. You know, That's difference. So yeah. uh, huge. So so what they were what they were doing was finding ways to cut costs, and and by doing that, right. they had an organization that would do their big screen for them. Mm. Um, I have no idea what the rate was, <laughs> uh, but they ended up buying us out of our last year, which. was a detriment to them because the concert never went on so they Mm. ended up buying you know out a lot of the i think the thing is if you made enough stink about it (laughs) they would buy out your contract sure um and then you were done they would then they had somebody else to come in and do it so i wouldn't have done it last year anyway for the first time you're out and and i was i was done with chasing it you know again 25 <laughs> years was was enough and even the last few years i like the producing part of it because you know to be out there for six acts a day uh with a ha- with a camera on your yeah. shoulder it's a lot of music you, yeah you better love it you better, you really better love it, it yeah <laughs> yeah and i did it for i did that for 18, 19 years, okay. you know, with a camera on my shoulder, yep. doing all six acts, you know, we would, at near the end, we would we would bring in an extra person and try and switch off a little bit. Right. Um, but for most of those years, it was, you had a camera on your you. shoulder. <sighs> if there's a band on the stage, you had a camera on your shoulder.
0: Damn. Yeah. So that, there seems to be, have been a bit of a change in your career then, because that was around the same time you started thinking about doing less with the Oilers? Or was that just a matter of because you got the new gig with City? Well,
1: okay, what happened there was, so I was, at, uh, I was at Access and then uh, A Channel slash City TV mm-hmm. and then um, basic, to be perfectly honest, I just wasn't having fun anymore. Yep. Everything was starting to change a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, when we started up, we were this young upstart that had all these young people working and we were doing things differently mm-hmm. and we were trying to make a splash. And, you know, um, it, it was it was good. Sure, there are errors and mistakes made mm-hmm. along the way and that happens with the young organization of right. any part. Um and, but it was fun, you know. It was invigorating. Mm. It was there was always new and fresh people coming in. I mean, I look across the country and realize how many people came through A Channel, right? Um, and it's it's a huge number, you know. Mm. Some of the best journalists in in Canada came through there, you know. Wow. And so you worked with them when they were just getting their start, you know, right. or just got just got plucked from a small station somewhere and and came to our place and and was excited to be there, you know. Wow. So anyway, so I, I worked there for a while and then it just wasn't fun Um, things were starting to change Uh, the big corporation was starting to come in and you were now a number as opposed to a person being an employee Um, and so it just and I thought you know what I being one of the first ones in the door the fourth Mm -hmm. guy hired I figured you know what I could be here probably till the end right Um, and if I always did it because I love doing it. How do you not love doing television? I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Right. It's something right? new every day, right? Exactly. It is something new every day and all the variety of things that I've worked on over the past with the sports and stuff like mm. that. How do you not like it? But I wasn't enjoying going to work every day. And I thought, mm. you know what? I can bitch about it mm-hmm. or I can do something about it. Okay. And so what I did was I made my mind up that, you know what? Maybe for the first time, ever again I will start sorry for the first time since being there Mm. I will start looking around so I made one phone call and that was to Jennifer Martin, um, who was an anchor at A Channel back in the day, okay. and she was now at Shaw TV at mm. the time, um, running the Edmonton operation there, and then as it turned into the Western Canadian operation she was running, so she was doing great things there. And her and I always got along good, and so I phoned her up and said, let's meet for a coffee, and so we met, and mm. I said, you know what? Um, I'm not having fun. Is there anything <laughs> anything there yeah. at Shaw? And um, she said, "You." come here? I said, absolutely. Let's. Mm. And so she said, well, give me some time. And um, so she created a position and wow. it was it was so far the best position I've ever had because it was, um, Jen was very forward thinking. Um, you know, it was community television. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were certain guidelines you had to follow. Um, but any ideas that I had or came up with uh, she was conducive for listen to Mm. and if I could sell her on it and why it's important and why we should do it um, she would listen and she would allow me to make it happen (laughs) so the nice thing about working there was it's a great team of people I mean it it was you know there was 15 of us there maybe you know great editors great uh, production coordinators great producers Mm. uh, great camera people everything Uh, but they you know they were doing what they had done for year after year, and that's one thing Jen was doing was changing things. Okay, and so we came in, and and basically I I was able to come up with with ideas, and it was great. I did, um, you know, one of the shows I worked on that I was most proud of was a show called "It's Not About Sex," mm. and it was about uh, the LGBTQ uh, community wow. and the struggles that they face on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and um, so. We tackled that, and Jen said, "Go for it!" And mm-hmm. so it was fantastic. We had a we did four four parts to the to the show, okay. and then uh, my co producer on it, um, her husband, is a hockey player, so they ended up going to Europe to um, to play hockey, and mm-hmm. so she left. So, so okay. unfortunately, that was the end of that show. Anyway, the original question <laughs>
0: to this was <laughs> no worries. Oh, uh, uh, it was, hockey, it was hockey, Yeah, hockey. it was basically when. It seemed like there was a shift in your career lately yes. from, uh, away from hockey. And were you at Shaw right up until you switched to city? No.
1: So so what happened was, um, so then I went to Shaw. Right. And um, over the years, I dodged 15 bullets with layoffs, you know, there <laughs> and restructuring and all that stuff. Sure. And then I was at Shaw, and they came in and shut it right down. Right. And so, I remember that. What, yeah. And what and so, year was that? Uh, 2014, I think it was. Okay. Um, and, no, 2000. 14 is...
0: Was it 15? Or like closer to... Yeah, like yeah. Right around when the new arena yeah, was yeah, open.
1: yeah. No, no, you're right. It was seven, 17. The spring of 17, I think, is, is when right. they shut everything down. And so I had, you know, uh, two months notice. Mm. There's three. There, some people were laid off that day. Some people were there to uh, tie things up right. uh, for 60 days or whatever. That was me. And then some were there for a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I was always able to negotiate working hockey into any job that I got, right, including right. City TV and Shaw, you know, because there was something that that I loved doing. Mm-hmm. And I always the reason I one of the reasons I did it, I mean, a I love hockey yep. um, and, you know, you're in the building, you get to see it all, you get to see all the excitement, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, <laughs> and another reason I wanted to do it is knowing Seeing what happened in the industry with a shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, I thought, okay, what happens if If I lose my job with a company, with a network, with Shaw, then you got to go freelance. And if you're starting from scratch, Mm -hmm. then you're clawing like everybody else is. And so I thought, you know what? I've been working on this. I know a lot of the freelance people. Mm -hmm. Um, I know a lot of the different companies, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to keep doing this in case I get laid off one day. Then I just slide more into freelance. So that's basically what happened when Shaw shut down um, is I just went full-time freelance for about two years right and um and it was it was good but you know again with the, with all the networks downsizing and just not many jobs in the television end of it mm-hmm. there were a lot of freelancers and you know yourself right. included yeah, and true and there's a lot of guys out there i was lucky because i had both the oilers and the oil kings i yep. um uh, oeg was fantastic you know i said I could go work for the truck if I wanted probably mm-hmm. I'm not sure but it probably could um, uh, but I like working with you guys so right. if you guys give me the Oilers and the Oil Kings then I won't pursue the truck work for you guys and so for me it was fantastic I mean it, it meant 80 days a year something like that True. you know so so that was a big you know big uh, boost for me as far as the freelance goes And then you pick up other things along the way mm-hmm. and Big Valley and all those things right and uh, City TV Was one of the clients that I did freelance work for, Mm -hmm. um, just as a casual, you know, when someone got sick or something like that. Mm -hmm. I had seen an ad that they had a full time position, or sorry, a part time position. And so I put my name in the hat and thinking, okay, as a freelancer, I have to put all my old feelings about the old, you know, city TV, you know, I I have to man up and and go back. Yeah, yeah, and and if I'm going to go back. And so, um, I ended up getting a call from Clint, who was my manager at A Channel or oh, wow. at City TV mm-hmm. and was still the manager there. And, and we talked for a while and we both agreed that we could work with each other again. And so <laughs> then I started doing part-time stuff and then a full-time position came up. And because of because of the way the industry is now i mean there's mm-hmm. only there's only one camera guy during the day and one at night mm-hmm. so it's not like there's a lot of flexibility on the on the time on the shift it's true and so because i have to be available for the live hits right. um, which goes i my shift was still 7:30 at night mm-hmm. i had to basically say okay i have to decide whether i'm going to uh, let go of the hockey yep. and go full time there and basically say that's it for freelance mm-hmm. um, or or stay in the freelance world, and I thought, you know what, um, let's go back full time. Yeah. And so, so that's what I did, and in hindsight, and you know, in light of everything, <laughs> everything that happened, you. it worked out <laughs> fantastic. I, you know, because I did hockey up until.
2: January? The,
1: the January, I had a couple of dates booked already. Yeah. And so um, I told Clint when I started that, you know, I've never been one to cancel dates for anything. Mm-hmm. And so he let me continue to do the dates that I had booked already. Nice. And then I think I picked up one game. I just mm. got my T4 from those guys. Oh, really? That's I, I think funny. I picked up one game in, <laughs> in February um, just because it was on a weekend or something. Yeah. And then hockey shut down. So. Yeah. So leaving leaving freelance, the timing for me was pretty good. I, I must say it was uh, yeah pretty lucky. It,
0: and good for you because I remember thinking when you left, I was like, "I what a sellout. How could he? How could he go back to a full-time job he had it made? And then, yeah, within two months, I was kind of wishing I had a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, to have all the
1: benefits and the holidays yeah. and, you know, all that stuff again. Mm-hmm. And, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I guess maybe doing 25 years of hockey, there were days where it just seemed like a job, yeah. you know, And but there were also days, there wasn't a single game when I walked in there thinking there's 15 people in Edmonton that would love to be doing what I'm doing. I'm mm-hmm. doing tight follow in the NHL and, you know, with a great group of people in mm-hmm. a state-of-the-art control room. Um, it, it just, I that, that was never... Never lost on me ever, and mm. you know, so it was tough to to finally make the decision to walk away, right. and you know, and discussing with them, I thought, well, maybe I can do a couple of games a year just so I can, stay you know, it. still get a taste of it and stay in. Mm. Um, but we'll see what happens. Now. Yeah, I don't know.
0: I guess yeah, we don't know, do we? Because uh, although I heard that fans are starting to be, they're back in New York. A few fans in the stands in New York. And Vegas. And Vegas.
1: Yeah, there are. Now, that's an American thing. Right. Um, You know, I think the story, one of the stories that that we're working on this week as well is uh, the fact that the Oilers, the Oilers have always been, you know... uh, excuse me ahead of the game in all of this you know yeah. they uh, the fact that they were able to pull the bubble off of the playoffs and you know stuff like that mm-hmm. these guys are forward thinking yep. there's a lot of money at stake of course um but these guys are forward thinking a forward-thinking company yep. um, and they've approached uh alberta health and said what do we have to do to get fans in the seats so really? um i think they will probably be one of the first in canada to get fans in the seats who knows when that's going to happen? Yeah. Um, you know, is it going to be in a month or is it going to be for playoffs or is it going to be next year? Who knows? Yeah, it, it all depends. There's so much up in the air with the variant and stuff like that. that right. You know, th- that's why Alberta Health Services cannot make a decision right now. I don't think there's still too much in the air. So right. So yeah, so so fans in the seats, obviously, you know, would help everything because that basically shut down the scoreboard. So, mm-hmm. you know, people like you aren't right. getting any games because uh, there's no scoreboard work.
0: Yeah, there's nothing to put on the scoreboard, really. Right, right. <laughs> and even if they bring back 20% capacity, there's almost that's almost worse to show, like, all those empty seats. They hate showing that. <laughs> it's hard to generate excitement in a half-full building, I think.
1: I, I think you're right. And, you know, I would love to see the documentary that's done afterwards, talking to the players about what it was really like mm-hmm. to play to those empty buildings. Because what do we like about playoffs? We love the atmosphere of right. playoffs. The fact that everything is loud. The fact that the ambient noise is, noise is 80 decibels. You know, <laughs> the fact when a goal is scored, it goes up to 110 decibels. You know, that, Things like that. The players feed off of that. Yeah. They, you know, When they do their sellies, that's, that's as much for the fans. That's because they go home and watch the highlights and want to see their faces on the highlights as much as anything, and how do you generate that inside a building that's empty? It's very hard, and they've tried. I mean, the the NHL has has done yeoman work in and trying to replicate you know, with ambient sound noise, with crowd noise that's pumped, with uh, you know, the goal horns that's pumped, you know, all of those things, mm-hmm. that helps. But I think if you really, if, if you were able to sit down with a player and they mm-hmm. were able to actually speak how they wanted to, yeah. they would tell you how big of a detriment it is.
0: I bet. I mean, it's, they're performers in, in some ways, right? It's half their, they've gotten to a level now where it's like, yeah, it's more than the game. It's more than the sport it's it's entertainment and, they, and some players feed into it more than others
1: absolutely and and that's one thing about hockey is is that they're not allowed to be individuals in a lot of cases you know mm-hmm. it's it's almost uh, military style that you know it's a team sport and you're just part of the team right. and you know we discourage too much stepping outside that box mm-hmm. you know it's it's wonderful to see, you know, some of the players that that have just said, you know, what I'm an individual and I'm going to be who I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys, sure, they create waves, but that, that's who the reporters go to to get the clips. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Wayne Gretzky, I think, changed all of that as well. He was the first one to really talk about things inside the game and stuff like that and I think up and coming people really took notice of that and there's mm. a lot of the Wayne Gretzky style of, of interviewing answers you know mm. uh, Gretzky was always a team a team person even though he has every individual record you can imagine right. he was still a team person at heart and that's the way he spoke that's the mm. way he did interviews That's right. and nobody got interviewed more than Gretzky so <laughs> you know people watched the way he did things and mm. they, I think to this day they emulate uh, the way Gretzky talks and interviews.
0: Interesting. That, that we, great group of guys, team first, kind of, that's interesting. I got to say, getting it to be a part of the scoreboard crew for one year at Rexall and then into, into Roger's place was such a, like, there's no bigger thing in my life than that in some ways. And it's just because you're part of something so much bigger than you, something so exciting, something that was transformative. Uh, did you, was it hard for you to leave that behind or were you, had you kind of grown over that
1: well that's a good question um i'll go back to when i first started it right in 1994 i think we decided uh, that was 94 95 something like that mm-hmm. you know we would set up a table and set up the vtr machines and there was only six of us working and right. you know so and that was with aquila productions at the time mm-hmm. and you know then we went on to do world ski- figure skating championships with them right Excuse me. um went on to do uh world track and field championships you know all sorts of big events with that company. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a kick in itself. You know, just working on some of the things that Don would... Would uh, would bring to the table was fan- Don Metz uh, would bring to the table was mm-hmm. fantastic. So, you know, working the early days of the scoreboard, you know, we also did the CFR every year, mm-hmm. and you know, so it was a great group of, of people. You know, a small smaller group, way smaller than than what is working in the scoreboard room now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Don, it was Don Metz's company, and he knew everybody, and and he, you know, he treated you like family. Yep. Um and it was a wonderful experience, you know, getting to know all the people that worked within his organization, getting to know all the freelancers that worked with him. It was fantastic. So, you know, there's those years and, mm-hmm. and the Oilers, you know, going to the playoffs and, and the excitement around that mm-hmm. and the 06 run and, you know, all of that um, was just, it was fantastic. And then, you know, again, a bigger company came in and took over with, with, right. with bigger, um, with Bigger things on their horizon. Yeah, you bigger interests. Bigger, like. bigger interests and in a different way of running things. I mean, a, a big company. It wasn't it wasn't the personal element anymore, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it, it was just, it was just, you know, it got different a little bit as time went on, mm-hmm. and so did i still love doing the games absolutely i did yeah. uh, was it the same atmosphere as it was you know back in know six when the oilers were doing their cup run and it's the same crew that mm-hmm. you know had seen this thing through to this point and here's our cup run finally that's incredible yeah yeah it, it was it was fantastic you know um so yeah it it was it was hard leaving that behind it, it uh, i'm not gonna lie it, it uh you know as i said not one day went by when i didn't appreciate walking in that building and looking up at the banners and mm. then looking up at the players banners and realizing i'm i'm doing hockey yeah. it's great
0: you're you're part of history in some ways
1: absolutely and and to be in that in that building i mean the fans hung on to go from the old building to the new building mm-hmm. just like we did i mean you know walking into that room you know what it was like walking into that room and seeing that room which is state of the art everything they did mm-hmm. was state of the art um the production teams you know we had amazing game day producers that just brought everything to the table and yeah. left it all there you know it was it, it was fantastic, it was, it was, you know, that was what the new big company brought to it, I think, is yeah. that we're going to make this about entertainment instead of just showing you the highlights that are on the board, which is what the first few years were, right. um, we're going to yeah. make this about entertainment.
0: The show on the board is almost as great as whatever's going on, on the ice yes. to Yes.
1: Well, and, and some days it had to be better because what was going on on the ice for a lot of years was not very good to be perfectly honest, and, oh, yeah. and, oh, yeah. and, and that team of people worked day in and day out trying to figure out how to keep the fans engaged, how to keep people interested mm-hmm. and enjoying it, so, and, and to this day, they do that, still yep. a great crew there.
0: It is, it is, it's, you're right about that when, like when Kate's group took over and the move into Rogers and OEG became this corporation. I got the same sense as I get from, from when I do some of that freelancing with City, where it's like, for me, just to get security clearance, 15 emails have to go to Toronto. Just like now, like you're saying, it, it sounds like it was almost like the Wild West at first. You just show up and shoot, you know, and now it's just, I get it because there's, it's a bigger image, you know, it's something.
1: That That's, I'm glad you said those words and that's, that's absolutely right i mean it, it wild west is an interesting way to put it you know they're not gonna lie there's a lot of beers drank after the games there still is yeah but but you know um again we would do the cfr and talk about the wild west i mean you know the, sure. the same group of people <laughs> yeah. doing that and so, yeah, it's, it just it felt different. It mm-hmm. just felt mm-hmm. different, and now it feels corporate. It, yep. It's like, again, you're back to being a number again. You know, uh, the managers and some of the people that have been there from the beginning appreciate the fact that I, I was there for so mm-hmm. many years. But at the end of the day, um, there's a team of 40 people running that or working mm-hmm. within that organization as opposed to 15 when we started.
0: Right. I guess to get to that level you need that rigid structure maybe the to-
1: yeah, yes and 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 there's nothing wrong with that there, because at the end of the day it's about the product yep. right and mm-hmm. and the product Sinks it's I mean you look at what goes on on that scoreboard and it is one of the best in the league I haven't been to a lot of buildings recently Mm. I've I've been to some in the past, but um, so I can't I don't have anything to compare it to but You know the fact that they've won the award for best scoreboard in-house production uh,
0: You know year after year Mm.
1: that tells you something
0: totally I could see maybe Vegas Vegas is getting close, but I've seen a number of games in Tampa Bay and in Sunrise in Miami there, and it's it's not even close. It's it feels like a, it feels like you're at a junior game, and then you look back on the ice. It's like oh yeah,
1: right. This is right. the NHL, yep. but yeah.
0: Yep. Sound system is tinny. It's so cheesy. You know, they always go back to the big fat guy who would always take his <laughs> shirt off. It's like really, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd never. And but that's the thing at, at at Rogers that none of that. It's classy, you know. It's yeah. Very much like a fan centered fan experience. It is. It it's is, and that's
1: you know, as as I mentioned earlier, it's about the entertainment value, and mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to charge that much for tickets, um, then you better hope that people see every game as an event. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, we all complain about the price of concerts but yep. if you pick your favorite band, how much would you pay to go see your favorite band? I mean, I'd pay two, three, four, five hundred $500, and I've done it with mm. my favorite band. Um, and if that's what they're charging for games, then then you better hope that you're giving them entertainment value. Yes,
0: you better be getting a brass and drum band, you yeah. better be getting girls throwing t-shirts, yeah. you better, be, all that shit. Yeah. yeah, it's gotta be better than the product on the ice, like yeah. you were saying. and McDavid scoring goals helps. That's another thing, man. You got to, I guess you didn't, you saw Gretzky's career sort of from afar, but we got to be part of the... Who will go down? I think is probably the greatest player. I think he will. No,
1: I I don't think he'll surpass Gretzky. You don't? No, okay. I don't. Second, uh, I think,
0: a close second, or are we talking uh, like Bobby Orr still and Gordy Howard? Uh,
1: I think I think there's Gretzky, and then you know a number of them, like okay. three, four, five, Bobby Orr, uh, John Beliveau, sure. you know players like that that are outside, you know, two generations removed from from your th- recollection Fair of enough. it. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, you know, if you talk to the old hockey historians, you know, they will have arguments for even why Gretzky wasn't the greatest. Ah. You know? But, but I, I, in, in my opinion, I saw him, and I don't know if it was the formative years of me being a hockey fan, mm. but and sure. all you have to do is, is look, at, look at the records. I mean, and what he did, you look at the points he got, you look at, I mean, he got more goals, you know, than, than the highest number of points in some years in the NHL. I think that's insane. Um, but it's you know, so the guy was amazing. He was he was amazing to watch. He totally changed the game. One, there's there's two things that I that I talk about with Gretzky and and how he changed the game the way he has, and I don't know that McDavid's going to be able to do this. We'll have to see, mm. um, but take for instance a rush down the ice right mm-hmm. so three forwards come rushing down the ice the two defensemen that you're going up against are skating backwards they know what their roles are yep. right who has the puck who you're going after etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and that's with everybody coming in right, right. everybody the, the forwards skating full speed in and the defensemen know what to do the goalie knows what to expect etc but mm-hmm. well, Gretzky changed all that because what did he do came in stopped at the blue line (laughs) and now the defensemen are going what are we supposed to do we didn't practice for this we don't (laughs) know how to defend against this and one thing he did is he's able to see the whole ice from where he is stopping at the blue line and setting things up right and so then after a couple of years they were able to figure that out okay right so they okay well he might do this so what are we going to do we're going to do abc if he doesn't we're going to do abc right Mm -hmm. so then what did he do he went behind the net. We're behind the right? net, so, yeah. so there he is behind the net. Again, what can he do? He can see the whole ice. Yeah. And so the defensemen are now hooped because <laughs> what do we do? Do we worry about the guy who's two are back? Right. Or do we worry about the other four players right. who can move around and he can go out either way? Nobody knows where the puck is going to go. That's incredible. You know, so yeah. – if you could chase him one way, he's going to come out the other way. You know, so so just brilliant in those little things. They're they're little things, but but uh, game changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, teams had to figure out how to defend against that style of play. Interesting. And and so so that was a total total revamp of the game. Is is McDavid capable of doing that? I don't know. His raw talent, his yeah. speed, speed, his. His passion for the game those things are are on Gretzky level mm-hmm. but but the thinking i don't know we'll have to see he's still young
0: it's true I guess that that was what I was going to say is like his speed and his his ability to think as fast as he does and move make moves in tight spaces and but that quarterbacking element you don't always see that like he's more likely at least even strength to score off the rush you mm-hmm. know there's there's not as much of what you're saying where he pivot and opens up like that, although how could you generalize mcdavid but He's not reimagining the game, I guess, quite like you're saying.
1: Well, I think another element that's that's important in that is the players that are around him, right? And that's, that's yep. one thing Edmonton yep. did was search out and find players that, yes. you know, like Curry. Um, would he have been as successful on another team? I doubt it. Um, but that was an amazing fit because he had his hand on his stick ready to shoot at any time. And... <laughs> You know, if, if you look at the, at the support and cast that Gretzky had around him, mm-hmm. um, it's uh, he made those players. I mean, yep. again, those players may have been mediocre on another team, right. but they were phenomenal as that group that won those Stanley Cups.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder if there's not also a leadership element missing from the current team. I, I have no idea. We have no idea how they t- go about But there's not that messier, that, that general that you're afraid of crossing or disappointing or maybe there is but you don't accountability maybe comes to mind
1: i think it's a different time yeah you know um i think if you know if you even go one decade before the oilers Mm -hmm. like that was wild west hockey you know and then then the oilers (laughs) with with glenn sather you know the the stories I, I would love to sit down and talk to some of the people inside those circles because the stories those guys would have yeah. that they've all sworn to never tell would be phenomenal. Right. You know, the, the the rumors of how many times that Glenn Sather, you know, bailed those guys out of a situation, oh, yeah. you know, are, are <laughs> historical, you know, um, but times have changed. Mm-hmm. It's now more of a business as Mm -hmm. opposed to a bunch of guys playing a sport and you know Mm -hmm. that changed i think with the gretzky sale and that that, that's when everything changed when they when they started um, uh, publishing what people were making Mm -hmm. that that changed things and and it made everything you know because nobody really knew there's rumors and speculation on what he was doing Mm -hmm. and then when they started you know publishing that then he's the benchmark right you can only make you can't make more than gretzky Mm -hmm. you know and so (laughs) Uh, but now, I mean, everything is totally different. Mm. There's so much at stake with the NHL that yeah. um, it's a totally different world.
0: Interesting. I really love this perspective on this because it's, I mean, you can bring it to me because we're of a different <laughs> vintage. <laughs> yes, we are. I do want to, before we get, because yes. we got a few things to cover while we're here, I guess, just to sort of segue into some of more recent stuff in your career, and I guess this interview is kind of coming on the back of I did an interview or a podcast with brichelle a reporter mm-hmm. that you work with I watched veracity this morning which was a documentary that you guys contributed to a couple I guess just one act like mm-hmm. one, one yeah, yeah yeah one of the six acts right which moving moving stuff um, I guess I just like to I asked her but I'd like to hear from you like what it, the first sort of instance that we're talking about here was in Panoka in it was early mid-september mm-hmm. I didn't have a date. September twentieth was Red Deer, but Pinoca was a few days before that. Mm-hmm. What What was your first inkling of something that happened in Pinoca? Like you weren't there for that that rally that was busted up by the whites by the counter protesters. But you got, you went to Pinoca the next few days.
1: Yes, we went to Pinoca for the press conference that these guys were having, right. uh, Because they weren't happy with. Um, with the action or reaction that they were getting from the RCMP, Mm -hmm. so they wanted to hold a press conference and just kind of bring attention to the fact that this happened, Mm -hmm. Um, because again, as Rochelle covered in her podcast, it wasn't widely covered by by the media at all, Mm -hmm. and even when we went to Pinoca for our press conference, um, or for their press conference, we were one of the few organizations there. Um, I was, quite frankly, that was my first, oh, see, we had the BLM stuff, in the summer as well, right. that, that was very eye-opening. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, just seeing that on on the heels of what was going on in the states, mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's 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 historical. You you know you're seeing historical times. Right. You know, seeing those things happening. seeing that rally down at the ledge, the BML rally, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just feeling the vibe from it and and stuff like that it is it is very. It's a different time for sure. Mm-hmm. And there's a million things I could talk about on that, but um, so so then we go to Pinoca and we see these these um, counter-protesters, or I don't even know what to call them, um, you Let's see these, these guys disrupting their press conference and again, as Rochelle pointed out, mm-hmm. when they were doing the land acknowledgement, uh, these guys were were talking through that and, mm-hmm. and that, uh, I'm sorry, that this, these are different times. We need to do those things, we need to show respect yep. and the lack of respect uh, is, is what really got me about that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know seeing those guys seeing the mm. the the hate in their eyes yeah. seeing you know and and just the the language they were using and just uh, what, what right did they have to be there these guys were holding a press conference this this isn't mm-hmm. your gig guys it, yeah. this has nothing to do with you mm-hmm. you know and so seeing and hearing that was was really eye opening yeah. you know it it really what it did, I think, and what that organization was doing, was trying to bring some acknowledgement to the fact that, that things were happening that we weren't paying attention to, just like the BLM, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Exactly like that. And so this was their chance to say, guys, these things are happening to mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. and nobody's paying attention to them. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a perfect example sure was. of their point is so well taken. And so it was staggering to see it. It, it was so disheartening
0: that That scene on the street where you're there and the your red vans right there, which is kind of funny, and those those guys come in and the, some of the things they're saying are so I'll say this right now, and I maybe said it to you when we were at that other protest mm-hmm. is like I, a lot of that to me is not about politics. No, it's, a lot of those people are just they're sick. They're, yes. there's a mental it's it goes it's a level above or below politics. it's mm-hmm. like it's psychological. Did you? So I'll just. I said I would ask you, but do you have a sense of where that hate comes from, or is it ignorance, or is yeah, it?
1: Yeah, I, I grew up in Alberta. Yeah. Um, so, it's been here. I mean, I I, I tell this story about in uh, 1984. I did an extended trip to Europe, which included uh, going to Israel for a month. Oh well. Wow. And, um, now again, that's before the days of the internet, mm-hmm. right? And and there was a man, a school teacher, by the name of Jim Keekstra. Um, who lived in, um, uh, Markerville or one of those places in central Alberta, okay. he taught there and he taught that the Holocaust didn't happen. Wow. And the people in Israel in 1984 knew about Jim Keekstra. And mm. so, wow. again, growing up in central Alberta, um, it, it was there when I left Red Deer, I mean, Red Deer to me is, is the center of it all. Okay. Um,
0: were you born there
1: or you lived I there for a I was born in Red Deer. Oh, wow. And then actually my dad was in the military. We did a little bit of traveling across the country. Okay. Came back when I was six. So okay. uh, basically grew up there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me to leave and come to Edmonton was such a breath of fresh air because I was able to leave all of that behind. When you're a kid, you don't notice it. You don't, you know, you hear things. and sure. and, and I... I st- Think of some of the things I grew up in a small town called Penhold, okay. and uh, you hear some of the things that that the adults would say, and and that would then you know trickle down to the kids' way of thinking and stuff. That's where kids get it from; is they get it from their parents. And it's taught. Yeah, it's yeah, 100 yeah. percent. It's taught 100 percent, and hmm. and so you know, coming to Edmonton, you're you're you now leave a lot of that behind. You know, one of my managers was gay, and I didn't know any gay people. You hmm. know, and just to to see and and be around an environment that was so inclusive mm-hmm. was fantastic. Just you know all that that hate and 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 redneckness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of central Alberta just kind of took a while to dissolve, but it did. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it is to answer your question, I think it doesn't surprise me because I think it's always been there. Mm. Um, I think. Pre-Trump, it took 20 years for it to get put into a closet and the door closed and locked. Mm. Um, I think uh, Trump kicked those doors open and kicked it open to white supremacy, kicked it open to a whole bunch of things, including the hate on the media.
0: Yeah, which was huge. Which, which you did you experience that at Pinoca? Guys telling you that, like that you were fake news or shitty news as they call us.
1: <laughs> that was just. That was the first real story we started doing on them. So okay. we weren't on their radar yet. Interesting. Um, they didn't, you know, in the past, I always say that that in the past before these events, before this time of four years ago, say, mm-hmm. the media was just uh, an element who, who went and covered an event, right? right. You. Um, You were lucky if the media went. That gave your event credibility, Mm. um, you know, to have your stories told, et cetera, et cetera. So we were never, pro or against anything we just told the stories right and that's our job our job is to tell the stories and that's what we would do and mm-hmm. so entities would love to have us out sure right and so we weren't an enemy we weren't on your side we weren't against you we were just there right um but that that has since changed and that again of four years of trump telling people because i i truly believe the people that are that are acting and reacting in this way that we're seeing now mm-hmm. are exactly the same as the people that did the did the insurrection on the on on the Capitol building. It's it's the same group of people, the same mm-hmm. mentality, the same beliefs. And that's yeah. that Trump gave these people a leader who thinks the same way they do. And that has emboldened and mm-hmm. empowered these people. So to answer your question didn't really feel a lot. We were just kind of able to do our thing there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I would have to go through the raw tape, but I I don't remember anything. And if it it did, it just kind of slid off my back. Mm -hmm. Um, But things changed quickly once the stories started coming out. And we were showing people what these people were like. They didn't like to see themselves in the mirror.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's probably it, hey? So was that that day you were there for the press conference and then you interviewed that RCMP? Was he a constable mm, or yeah. a Smiley? That was an interesting because you actually said it earlier like they were doing their thing on the street and those guys showed up and you said, what right did those guys have to be there? And it's like, well, they did have a right to be there. Did they have a 100%? Did they have a gen, do they have a if we rights generally do they have a right to do that? Well, what good was it you know but that's kind of what that cop said to you to you guys right
1: yes that that whole situation was very interesting because at the end of it all things got got pretty tense with things right. going on between the two groups mm. um and you know so i'm just there shooting and shooting and then and then again they did it right in front of an rcmp station which which i thought was interesting interesting venue to do it in but mm. the cops were out there in full force watching what was going on, and, I've been thinking about this a lot. Okay. You know, what... So so, so then after everything happened, uh, that's when Rochelle and I said, you know, let's go see if we can find a staff sergeant, see if he'll talk. Quite mm-hmm. often in these events, they won't. They'll say they will just push us upstairs to a PR person. Okay. But this guy said, sure. And so, so we interviewed him. And then he gave that smug comment. Yeah, And right after that, that, that was the last comment um, about everybody is one voice more important than another. Right. And if you were to see that in writing, um, I, I think in writing, you, you, you have to agree, okay, you know what? Everybody has their right, mm-hmm. but what are these guys doing? It's not their press conference. It has nothing to do with mm-hmm. them. Why are they interrupting these guys? That aside, just seeing that line, every, mm-hmm. is one voice more important than the other? The simple answer is no. Right. It's the way he said it on the heels of what happened right. and the force that those guys were out there showing. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as he said that, and I stopped recording and, and <laughs> Rochelle and I are walking away, we both look at each other and go, "Did we hear that right?" Right. And sure enough, we looked at it and it's like, "Yeah, that's what he said and that's what he meant." Like the the smugness mm-hmm. of the way he said it, I just I can't get it out of my mind.
0: Yeah, he he did. I don't smugness or just ignorance, because smug. It was it was smug. Are you suggesting that one side one voice is more important than the other? Because it's not. Right. But what, what could they have said? because they they chose not to act. They just stood there and let it happen. So what... yes.
1: and and that's one of the things I've been thinking about. Like, were, were there any laws broken? going back to Edmonton as well? Were there laws broken here? Uh, on the surface? No, we'll talk about Edmonton sure. in yeah, a minute. Yeah. But um, were there laws broken? No. Was there and maybe there were maybe maybe um, uh, disrupting the peace. Um, You know, things like that. Those are gray areas, I imagine, Mm -hmm. subjective. Um, But I would think if a top-ranking cop goes up to their leader and says, you know what, guys, just let them have their say. Everybody Mm -hmm. can go on their way. That might have gone somewhere. Mm -hmm. That did not happen. Um, Would it have made a difference? I don't know. We'll never know because Mm -hmm. they chose not to do it. They they chose to let those guys be belligerent assholes Mm -hmm. um, while those people were trying to have a press conference. And, and maybe because the press conference was against the RCMP saying mm. we're not getting any action. The RCMP just said okay.
0: Right. So that's an interesting... I don't want to... I, I do want to fast forward to the end of your act just to, because you're mm-hmm. leading me there. There's that scene where uh, what happened in Red Deer happened and we can go over that and then this, it happened the next day in Red Deer where they got to have their peace march and the, and the police cleared everybody out mm-hmm. and you, there's that great scene where you ask her how does this feel? She mm-hmm. says it feels mm-hmm. great. And then in that interview, that uh, Keisha, mm-hmm. she said something to the effect of, well, I think the RCMP did what they did because they wanted to change the narrative. and I, I, Which is interesting to me because it's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's like she didn't really give the RCMP credit for doing finally what she had hoped they would have done the first time. They cleared all those assholes out of there. But, and I, I'm not taking a political stand here, but with that leftist activism, it's almost like there's always someone else to blame. that was the sense i got
1: Uh, that's a fair question i think another thing you have to remember
0: (laughs) Is there
1: was five different elements involved okay. in right? There's there's the the uh, violent protest in Red Deer that we weren't at that that we got that great video of with the punching. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know there was the the other one we weren't at where a person allegedly got struck by a vehicle. Then mm-hmm. there's the there's the two we were at, but then there's also the the RCMP press conferences. Yeah, so we that, should
0: keep going in chronological. I just wanted to make yeah. that point where it's like. Ultimately didn't they get what they wanted in the end? Did they, they feel they, like they, they did? did?
1: But but the reason sorry the reason I did that long explanation was there was the RCMP were under a lot of heat. There was right. there was officer or sergeant Smiley's um, uh, comments right. which they got heat for. Um, right. the, there was the press conference that mm-hmm. they said there was no uh, there's there no investigations happening and mm-hmm. then 2 days later they said there were investigations happening. Um, right. so so there was a lot of heat being put on them. Uh, over these two entities that were going on being um, you know the 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 group that we were following for the documentary Mm -hmm. and the counter protesters are are, uh, we should have given them names at some point but um, so so there's a lot of heat going on about those two elements and how the RCMP were dealing with them or not dealing with them Mm -hmm. so the show that they did in Red Deer Mm -hmm. was they knew there was going to be all the cameras there mm-hmm. um, because this thing grew and grew and grew. Right. As our stories got out there and people started seeing them, mm-hmm. um, it, it started focusing a brighter light on it. Mm-hmm. And so that brought in all the elements. You know, uh, stations from Calgary came, oh, from Edmonton really, eh? came, and so the police knew that. Mm-hmm. And so they knew they were under the gun, and this is only my opinion of it, but they knew they were under the gun mm-hmm. for what they were doing. They were they knew the, the, the light was shining very brightly mm-hmm. And what their reaction was going to be, mm-hmm. so they did everything and then some to make sure that there weren't confrontations. That, gotcha. that, that they looked like they were doing exactly like you said, like they looked like they were doing what they should be doing mm-hmm. and giving these guys room. And they certainly didn't do that in Pinocchio for that press conference. No, no, God, right? no, no, so, 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 yes, uh, um, I, I think they went over and above, mm-hmm. um. And you know, they did a good job in, mm-hmm. in making sure that, that the people, because the other side apparently brought people in from Toronto who are some of their, really? their ringleaders, their shit disturbers, wow. um, you know, to get everybody worked up. And, and there's uh, you know, some of the footage that didn't get used in the documentary is you know, those guys coming around the corner and looking up and seeing you know, a block away, this group waiting for them. It's like, wow. what the hell is gonna happen here? You know. Uh, like a standoff at the OK Corral. Totally, it's, totally. What it was like.
0: And I should say, like, so, so she's right then. They did, they did change the narrative.
1: Oh, well, 100%. One, uh, and, and that is not by accident. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's, it was a very conscious decision. Somebody higher up than, than we would ever get a chance to talk to mm-hmm. said, you guys have to deal with your shit here, is, right. is what I think happened. You're looking bad. Yeah.
0: Because it was, it, was, it was a terrible look for, for those departments. Absolutely. And like so did you ever I guess that's all I'm trying to say is i'm not i love the fact that those people are out there protesting mm-hmm. like i'm I'm all for it I'm not mm-hmm. some closeted bigot, but i guess i'm one did you ever hear from the activist side that did they ever give the r c m p the credit or was it all was it just like yeah well we we pushed through all of it and did it anyway did you was was that ever said or which keisha's group you mean um sure or any yeah yes
1: um no they were and And I was a little bit taken aback, the same way you were by Mm -hmm. her comments, uh, because to me, I saw it as, okay, they they did their job and they let them have their their demonstration. Mm -hmm. They they let them have their protest. Um, And that should appease you. But Mm -hmm. we're also not the ones that are being forced with... Faced with what they are being faced with every day. So an appeasement to us is not an appeasement to them Necessarily, and so she's seeing it on a totally different Plane than we are totally different right we come in and we spend a couple hours with them and and we get to know them But we don't know what they're going through. We don't know we see the visceral hate that these guys have in their eyes Mm. and these guys are getting that given to them i've had comments on on twitter and stuff like that these guys are hateful people oh, yeah and and so one little show of support from the rcmp did not appease her um to to uh, maybe what you wanted mm-hmm. or what i wanted mm-hmm. but it's her story
0: totally and i do have to do my best to sometimes get centered mm-hmm. and remember that i could never really understand She's seen probably so much hate that like oh. yeah one one it's a drop in the bucket that the police finally did their job.
1: Yeah, as white guys, Patrick, I know, I know. Uh, we we
0: have no idea. And that's that's actually doing this podcast for the last few months. That's been the biggest thing because it wasn't like I said like I, I was I was resistant in some ways to the idea of systemic racism, not because I, but I just didn't. Please, yeah. You Have another one. Oh yeah, no, I threw in the fridge. Oh okay. Let me just. Okay, well, I'll grab them. Okay. And we'll yeah. make it. <laughs> if you're enjoying this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and leave a five star review. And now, back to the conversation. So, I guess I was somewhat resistant to this concept of systemic oppression because I didn't understand it purely. And I was, I got into some trouble, not trouble, but discussions on, on other episodes where I finally just had to accept that. I just should stop trying to make a judgment on what is right or wrong in these people's experiences and I should just listen. So just to finish the thought on on Keisha, I guess that's the key here is like, yeah, the police did their job, but where were they and where have they been? Let's just chalk it up to this is how it went.
1: And I think that's exactly why these stories need to be told, right? Because, again, we are a population that's 80 percent white or whatever the number is. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's us that make the decisions. It's us that that make Mm -hmm. the laws and and the political decisions, et cetera, et cetera. We have no idea unless you live a day in their life, Mm -hmm. you really don't know. And that's why telling those stories that Mm -hmm. City TV did, I think were crucial. I think us. Um, going to those events mm-hmm. was crucial in all of this yep. because as we know go back over history and whether it's gay rights whether it's it's issues in the states with color et cetera, et cetera. nothing gets done unless there's a bright light sh- yep. shone, shone on it totally. and, and that's what we need to do and it's not easy to do because no. it, how do you tell both sides you know uh, how do you our job is is balance our job is to tell both sides but how can you tell the other side when it's just full of 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 hate and when there's subjectivity to it as well it's just it's it's very tough stories to tell it really is and Mm -hmm. and our job is to tell stories and these are tough ones to tell
0: they are they sure are do you um that's rochelle said that in her podcast she's like racism doesn't have two sides you know, I mean, it does, but it doesn't, the second side doesn't necessarily get to have a voice because, and that was the other thing is like, maybe now we can segue, I should say people should watch that documentary Veracity. It's on YouTube just to really understand what we're talking about here. But on, was it the 20th that we, February 20th, sh- right? Yep. February 20th, there was a torch march organized by a real interesting mix of people there. QAnon wingnuts, backwater hicks, Christians, a lot of Christians and you know, You name it. It was a real hodgepodge. There was a trans rights activist that spoke. I want to get that person on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that, I guess that, I forgot where I was going, but no, go uh, ahead and pick it up. Yeah. You were talking about, um,
1: on the 20th, we knew that was happening for five weeks, I think. Oh, wow. And so I was booked. I I normally don't work Saturdays, but I was booked to come in and work on it. Um, we knew it was going to be a big one. Mm -hmm. um, just just because they were having weekly rallies in Calgary, anti-mask, anti-lockdown rallies. Right, and right. they wanted to bring one to Edmonton. Right. And so they were promoting it for a few weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side as well, the BLM people and those guys were going to come out as anti-protesters to, to their initial protest. Right. Um, and then everything kind of changed not change, but I think the focus came became a little clearer when we saw the poster that they used um, and used that one picture from Charlottesville uh, with the tiki torches. Yep. Um, there isn't a, a person on the face of this earth that, that can tell me that that isn't a racist photo. And, and that, uh, there's no question about it, that that, that was meant to bring a narrative to the table. Right. And so they stood up there the whole time and talked about how we're not racist, we're not this, we're not that. Yet there's a pile of tiki torches ready to be lit up on the ground. Um, You know, and and again, there was some back and forth between the two organizations. Things got heated when an arrest was made. Right. Um, by the police there, the, the show of support was very interesting and I pointed this out I think to you and, and to the reporter that I was working with um, that day, Bailey you know the way that the police handled doing a line on the two different groups yeah. for the group that, that had the tiki torches and, and um, you know the hate group mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I can say that now after I'll tell you what I've learned since then sure, or what's please. come out since then um, uh, because we shouldn't be ones to jump to the conclusion of a narrative right away, right? And so we have to kind of uh, gather evidence, gather information, and present a story. Mm-hmm. So there was some back and forth, and then uh, so so the police on the BLM people, mm-hmm. they made a solid line with bicycles. And police so it was a solid line it was like a fence line with with the the tires of the of the bicycles interlocked one by one yeah there was yep. no getting through on the other side 15 <laughs> feet away there was cops every 15 feet
0: right you're talking yeah because so the, the hate the hate group or whatever you want to call yep. them the the, the anti-maskers yep. let's say they were up high on that yep. that pavilion yep. that comes off 108th street yep and then yeah, you're saying they had some room and then the cops. Yeah.
1: Room, the cops, but the cops were also 15 feet apart 15 feet apart, right. 10 feet apart where the other guys there was a solid was a line fence. with the bicycles. Yeah. So 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 that to me was a was a little bit of um telling on on mm-hmm. them showing dominance over those people versus no dominance over over the anti-masking people. Yeah. And then the arrest happened and the arrest happened behind the line. There's so not only was there the line of police on on the square, yeah. right? But then it also went into the field. Yeah, right. And so yeah. it kind of continued up on. Up the hillside kind yeah, of up the hillside. So so the, the one guy was arrested on the BLM side of the police. And so I assume he was probably asked to leave and refused to leave. And so the cops said, okay, if you're not going to leave, we're going to have to arrest you. Something like that. So I he
0: crossed the line, you figure? Oh, yeah,
1: no, he was. He, he was. he was behind the line. He I, was the that, organizer, wasn't he? Yes. The guy yeah, with the Yeah, yeah. and his brother is the organizer of the anti-mask rallies in Calgary. Okay. He's a street preacher. Street um, preacher. Um, yes. See, that's so <clears throat> weird that
0: it hides behind this, this Christianity. Oh, I found oh, that thanks. very strange.
1: That's, that's a whole other topic. Um, so, so anyway, that arrest happened, and I take my camera off the tripod and start shooting that, right? You got some great footage and by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and so it starts getting heated, and there's a lot of cops there. And so this guy is resisting a lot and mm. he's yelling, get my brother, get my brother. And, you know, they're, they're, there's kind of this walkway that, that they get him down into and start walking. Well, then all of a sudden, all these anti-mask and anti-lockdown protesters come and swarm the cops yeah. and start trying to pull these guys away, trying to pull wow. the guy who's being arrested, trying to pull the cops off of this guy. And I'm thinking, what am I seeing here? And And so there's Probably, I think if you look at the footage, uh, probably 15 cops, 20 cops and that many of, of the anti masking mm-hmm. people down in the trench with those guys. Um, four of the cops were injured mm-hmm. from and the police say they have video of the guy who was punching the cops. Wow. Um, so all of this is happening. Right. And I'm thinking, OK, well, I don't know how bad this is going to get. But so it kept rolling and they end up um, you know, arresting the guy mm-hmm. and then taking him away. And then things go back to the rally, right? right? And at first I thought, well, good for the cops for not letting that get out of hand. You know, yeah. it could have easily got out of hand. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, what if that would have been the BLM side that was being arrested and it was anything but white middle-aged men that were coming up and trying to, um, to interrupt this arrest? What if it would have been other people? Would it have ended the way it did? Nope.
0: Nope. That, I don't know. That was the moment that those anti-maskers were surely hoping for.
1: And and that gave them credibility. That gave them more power to. It's like okay, we we, we can do whatever we want. And so then, the the police chief had availability on tuesday okay the following and, tuesday no this tuesday oh, actually okay. and talking about the tiki torches it took him a week to do it right mm. uh, talking about the tiki torches and you know saying oh that's not a symbol you know if there if you have any any evidence of hate issues that were happening etc cetera, etc cetera, please bring them forward that is not enough you know to to be a hate crime etc okay. etc went on and on saying that you know the tiki torches were just they weren't really anything but then the hate crime leader Mm -hmm. for the edmonton city police he had a press conference the next day Mm. he said well as a matter of fact we talked to the organizers and asked them not to bring the tiki torches just because of what it represents what it can be interpreted to represent right? right so we asked them and they said no we're going to anyway and then uh, the hate crimes people saw the poster with the Charlottesville picture and asked them again not to bring the torches. Really? And they did. So what does that tell you when they've been told twice by the police to leave the torches at home, yet they choose to bring them and they stand out there and say, this is not a symbol of hatred. This, this doesn't represent racism. This is just torches to light the way. <laughs>
0: What it tells, well, it tells me a lot of things. It, it makes it all very glaringly obvious what's going on. I suppose if you... Can you then talk to me about that? Because we, me and Laura, we followed them on a few laps around the mm-hmm. as it was getting dark. And we asked a few people about the torches. And one guy said it's a Christian symbol. Another lady said same thing. So what is this? What is this? Are they using Christianity as a, a front? Or, or is there...
1: My, no, sense no, no. Was, my sense no. was that
0: was a real hodgepodge of different people who are all interested in personal liberty. Some of them were certainly hateful people. Not all of them, I don't think, were.
1: Well, I think, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, that, that there's a whole mix of people involved in that. There's Christians, mm-hmm. there's the anti-lockdown people, there's you know, all these different elements. But there's all, I, I, I would say, if you need to break it down, there is one <laughs> thing that they all have in common. And that is exactly the same thing that the Trump lovers have in common in the states mm. is that somewhere in them is an inherent hate mm. um, they They may not be able to admit it themselves if if you look at and and the fact that this is happening. The fact that George Floyd happened and then COVID happened at the same time with the lockdown, it's just a perfect storm we're living in. And and maybe it's good, maybe at the end of all of this it will bring it all to a head and those Neanderthals will be pushed back into, into the the, Their the cave. closets, yeah. into the caves from from which they came. And maybe this is what it's going to take. That, mm-hmm. The fact that something that could fester over two, three, four, five, six years is actually only going to fester over one year. I don't know. Who knows what's going to happen. But then, then you have the whole church element involved. And a lot of those people were you know, there because they're pissed off that the pastor is still in jail and all he's doing is is going to church. Well, folks, we're in a pandemic here. Mm -hmm. There's laws against that. He's choosing to break the laws. Mm -hmm. He is choosing to not adhere to the regulations of of the bail that they're offering him. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, no, I, I can't say that I'm not going to go back to preaching to over capacity churches. Well, buddy, then you're not getting out. And so these people see that as as, you know, tromping on their rights. Mm-hmm. And it's not we've you know, if, if you look at what's happened over the lifespan of COVID so far, you know, people have died alone because you're not allowed to be with them. Right. Um, people have had birthdays and, and weddings and graduations have stopped. You know, um, it, it just it, it never ends for the things that people have given up for this to try and make a difference. And, you know, it, and we knew this going into this. And, and I remember having a conversation with somebody that all these lockdown restrictions that are happening, mm-hmm. they're going to work. And then these anti lockdown people are going to say, see, it's not as bad as, as what you guys were thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happened. I mean, we've sacrificed right. a lot. Um, I've been lucky to be working. Mm-hmm. Some people haven't been lucky. They've sacrificed that. You know, the people don't work around people anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. don't go out. You, uh, the, the music industry, the entertainment industry has been decimated. And those are the sacrifices we're making. Yet you think you should be able to go to church and, and sit you know, rape beside somebody else mm-hmm. for two hours? No, you shouldn't. And if he is not going to abide by those rules and regulations, then he should not be out on bail. And those are the people that that are at those rallies as well. Yeah. And so the the, the whole church thing has really got me frustrated because <laughs> Sounds like it. I went in yesterday, <clears throat> we're, we're recording this on Saturday, I went Friday, um, and saw the church like so I went right up to the door there is a notice on the door like there would be on a restaurant if a restaurant was closed down by Alberta Health Services that says this place is closed down yet it's not being enforced can you imagine if a restaurant was closed down and they tried to open up those people would be arrested in a second yet every Sunday the police are there making sure that everybody gets in safely and everybody leaves safely what's going on what's going on I have no idea
0: wow this is Grace Life Church in Parkland County. Like, this is it west of the city?
1: Yeah, west of the city. It's it's right beside um, uh, the corn maze. Oh, yeah. Oh, really? It's it, yeah, straight out there. So it's. I mean, that whole thing it, it makes me angry. Mm. Uh, it pisses me off that the police aren't doing their mm-hmm. bit. I mean, they have every right to go and chain those doors. Why those doors aren't chained, I have no idea. It says right on there that the place is closed.
0: Is this some kind of example of systemic corruption in our in our law enforcement or is it oh. It's like two sets of rules for two sets of people?
1: Well, you know, I'm sure if you talk to the right people, they would say, "Oh, we just, you know, it's all about education. It's all about, you know, that that's when people say, "Well, why aren't the police in enforcing the rules Mm -hmm. Uh, while we we would rather educate we would rather you know inform people as to what they should be doing Mm -hmm. this goes way beyond that this has been going on since the middle of december right you know they got their first ticket whatever the last week in december Mm -hmm. and they've been allowed to continue to do this every sunday since then i just saw a tweet today saying there's a church in calgary that is going to be doing exactly the same thing these guys are being empowered and emboldened by the fact that the police aren't enforcing the rules
0: and we saw the exact same thing because technically all those guys gathered uh, at the protest on the twentieth. Not a one was wearing a mask, obviously by design, and the, none of that was ever addressed.
1: No, one hundred percent. And you know, yes, there is a fine line between being able to. Uh, demonstrate which is which is our Charter of Rights to do mm-hmm. um, we, we're allowed to do that mm-hmm. but there's also rules in place we're in the middle of a pandemic mm-hmm. that we're trying to get through the variant now we have no idea how it's gonna act and react mm-hmm. yes th- things seem to be under control at this exact moment right. but it's because of the sacrifices that people have done to get us to this place
0: That ha- that has to go without that has to be said actually it's not like this thing is curving on its own. People no. are actually making the sacrifices. Um, I want to try and dig down with you on this again. Yep. Um, where does this hatred come from? It, it's, it's learned. It's passed through the generations. But what is it rooted in? And why does it seem to concentrate in these rural small town areas? Do you have any insight on that? Because you could say that in big cities, there's often universities. There's more diversity. There's ideas flourish in cities. Whereas in small towns and in rural areas, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, quite the opposite. Do you, is that well, fair? Well,
1: that, that's. I think you have to ask the question: What draws people to a rural community? You know, that does is it is it because like-minded thing, like-minded people? Um, you know, again, <laughs> I grew up in Pennell, the small small sure. place. There are some wonderful people, farmers who just farm because they love farming. Mm-hmm. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but. Is there something more to it? I I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that growing up in small town, Alberta and the Red Deer area, Mm -hmm. there was overt racism. There was, you know, all of that. There was, and and what, look in the States. I mean, what, 60 million people voted for Trump. Uh, You know, how is that possible after the four years of him showing who he is? Mm -hmm. How is that possible? So where does that hatred come from, Mm -hmm. you know? And and these guys are, are wise enough to, straddle the line on on being overtly racist and overtly homophobic homophobic, Mm. homophobic. Um, (laughs) they hate hobos yes um so where does it come from i uh, i i don't know i
0: no problem it, it, it,
1: it it starts As we talked about, it starts Mm -hmm. with parents Mm -hmm. and trickles down to to kids. If the kids don't have a way or a means to get out of it Mm -hmm. um, and don't have a desire to change their way of thinking Mm -hmm. and are just that brainwashed. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I, I really don't know. Um, All I know is that the last couple of years have shown that it is distinctly still here without a question, it's still here. Um, You know, is it is it the oil and the blue collar um, attitude and and the Western attitude of, of Alberta that festers and allows some of this to fester? I don't know. I mean, I worked on rodeo stuff for year after year after year. Wonderful people. But would these be the same people who refuse to wear masks, who, who would go to church on Sunday when they're not supposed to? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I think it's... I think it's a root problem, uh, as opposed to anything else.
0: Okay, that's interesting. And so, when I started looking into systemic oppression, talking to some friends about it, and one thing I wrote very early on was like, I, "There's clearly no solution here. Like, this is something that is as old as we are as a species. I think to to create in and out groups and just to see me as part of this group, the collective, and that collective's over there, and we don't like them." And I, I would never expect anyone to come on this podcast and have any solutions but maybe maybe give me a historical perspective you've been in the media for th- almost 30 mm-hmm. years has has it have there been advances or, or are we like you said we're in a period now where it's really oh totally oh, it's, regressed it's regressed
1: yes um when i talk about this and 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 the political element of it i always say up until 4 years ago i had no idea what your politics were or what my friend over there what their politics were or a colleague over here what their politics were Mm -hmm. it didn't matter it didn't define who you were as a person it didn't you know it if you went to church so be it Mm -hmm. but you know you wouldn't come and and rant and rave about it on Monday Mm -hmm. you know that type of thing to me there was a scale there was there was a linear scale Mm -hmm. and everybody fell some place along that scale, right okay. left of center right of sure. center center far left far right, whatever, but it didn 't define who you were. that has all changed as you just addressed with the two camps, there are two distinct camps now there there is no gray area anymore that gray area is gone so how do we get out of this I th- it needs to come to a head. Um, mm. I think the police need to address the fact that it 's real yeah. um, you know and and I'm going to bring up one more thing about the RCMP that goes back a number of months now. Um, when the stuff was happening in the States and we saw all the situations that the police were overtly showing their racism, mm. um, there's a press conference at the RCMP downtown here. Okay, I asked the RCMP the question, is there systemic racism in Canada? And he thought about it. and the first question first answer he gave was no i don't think so and you know went on to answer it Mm -hmm. two days later that was a monday two days later they held another press conference Mm And said, we've been thinking about this a lot. It's gone all the way up the chain, mm-hmm. and in fact, there is systemic racism in the RCMP in Alberta, and or the RCMP in Canada. And okay. This goes to missing uh, Indigenous women, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And and you know, in the states, uh, they have certain problems there. We have our own problems here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is there systemic racism in our enforcement agencies? I i want to it it pains me to say it but i think we saw it in edmonton uh on february 20th yeah. the fact that that if that was anything but a bunch of middle-aged white men who were swarming and punching the police so that four of them got injured via i mean that comes right from the police chief mm. um that there would have been a different outcome That that there would have been at least more than one person arrested in that situation. So is is that a systemic problem within inside their organization? I don't know. Hmm. I don't, uh, I, I, it, it pains me to say, yes, maybe it is. Hmm. But yes, maybe it is.
0: Right. Have you gotten much reaction from that documentary or like what's kind of the feeling maybe just even within City News about because I would we should say like you and I shot at that protest mm-hmm. on the 20th you and I and two reporters and we got heckled numerous times from from the anti-mask side shitty news go home whatever which was actually kind of fun. The whole thing was a kind of a fun experience.
1: It 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 is Fun. I mean, I I love that sort of activity. Mm -hmm. Um, There was the one video that Bailey shot um, that has half a million views on it um, of the guy, you know, approaching me, getting in my face, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something that I've never had happen. And he was one of five guys during the day who did that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they feel that it's their right now to do that they're emboldened um they are totally emboldened um in my career that's never happened you know maybe at a picket line um Mm, you know something happened but um but something like that where it's so in your face and and them thinking i'm just there doing my job buddy i don't come to your workplace and get in your face when you're doing your thing i don't i don't You know they don't like the stories we're putting out and and when that was happening on that Saturday those guys coming I know they were prodding me hoping that I would do something like that was a tinderbox ready for a match and I refused to be that match it's like it would have been so easy for me just to put the camera down and and you know talk to those guys but that's exactly what they would have wanted I mean all you had to do is look around and there's 15 phones you know shooting me at all times. that was crazy and and it's like uh, okay they're looking for something I'm not gonna give it to them. so if in our story they want to look like the assholes for the way they're approaching Mm -hmm. us doing our job Mm -hmm. Bailey got accosted as well Mm -hmm. um, when she was up there and and that's that that's totally unacceptable 100% unacceptable that they're doing that that they're mm-hmm. emboldened to do that but that's the way it is so have things changed in these things? Like, uh, you know, I've never gone out with security to events before, <laughs> yeah, and we've true. gone out a number of times now with security. Oh, really? And um, you know, Red Deer was was oh, the other did, eh? example. Mm. Um, you know, it's just and that never used to happen. We never used to have a target on our back, but we do now. Mm-hmm. And and to these people, to quote Donald Trump, we're the enemy of the people. Wow.
0: There was a, there was a crazy moment when Laura and I went across the line into the anti-mask camp to try and get some, you know, try and get someone to speak Mm -hmm. to us. And at one point we were surrounded by all these goons with their phones out. Mm -hmm. And this, this woman comes out and just starts finger pointing. You don't tell the truth. Shame on you. That was a big one. A lot of people said shame on you as if they had any power to shame (laughs) me, but (laughs) emboldened for sure. I just, I got to say, Rod, I have said it before, but like there's it's a mental illness it's and it's a sickness and it's a it's a collective i don't know if it's low intelligence or i i never felt intimidated and i never once felt like either of those two sides were necessarily heroic or even mm-hmm. in, uh, you mm-hmm. know like it, it was not it was ugly it mm-hmm. was there was nothing progressive or or good that happened that day
1: no 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 there wasn't what did you learn from that day
0: i learned that people there's well, I got to see some QAnon and some real white supremacy face to face for the first time probably ever and looked at those people and just how there's there's just something missing. But as well, on the other side, it's not as though those people are are need to be morally uplifted. Some of the people in the Antifa Black Lives Matter side like, of course there's good people there. And I'm not going to say there is fine people. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah, not going to yeah. do yeah. that, but I'm not I'm not cuz that's probably doesn't need to be said. It's stupid. But the, the sorts of people that live out those ideas and go into that battleground of ideas, a lot of times are people, I think, that haven't taken the time to look inwards and do some real, like, why is this external cause so damn important to you? That when you haven't, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, you see, like, I don't, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but as a, you see a big, gigantic, obese person on, the, on one side or the other, it's like, buddy. There's a lot bigger problems in your life than this. If you get COVID, you're fucking dead. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, there's a real, to me, the pandemic, of course, there's many pandemics, but there's one of an ab, just a, just a real rejection of personal responsibility and a rejection of humanity and, and, and looking after yourself. That's, that's what I'm seeing. None of that shit was political to me in some ways. It was actually almost like watching a movie and it was watching these two narratives Com- combat each other through people who are essentially like pawns, you know.
1: Well, and and a lot of it is the echo chamber that these people live in as well, right? Yep. Um, you know, obviously they don't listen to us. Um, no. uh, they, they have at one point if they're calling us fake news and, and we don't tell the story, right? So they they obviously see some of our stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and they don't uh, they don't satisfy their need because it's not their narrative that, that we're telling. Right. Um. But. Nowadays, because of, as I talked about, the, that scale no longer being there in the two different camps, there's also two different camps on the echo chamber on where they get information. You know, so, so Facebook can feed them, you know, that type of uh, right wing nut information. Yes. They have, excuse me. They have uh, Rebel Media. They have, you mm-hmm. know, all of these things. That I was standing right beside The guy from Rebel Media, as he's saying he's getting beat up by the cops while the cop tapped him on the on the calf and said, hey, you know, get down from here. You know, I was standing right beside him Mm -hmm. as he's doing his live saying he's being abused and accosted (laughs) by the police. And it's like, oh, your your perception of reality, buddy, is is so different from anybody else's, you know, and that's that's what's feeding these people. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. their perception of reality is twisted in their echo chamber
0: that's a big that's a big part of it too is like you were saying earlier too there's two there's two camps and everything is getting skewed out to the Mm -hmm. ends of the spectrum and it's it's Mm -hmm. if you're if you're in the center you're trying to be logical i'm trying to do some of that with this show is just like tease out some ideas suddenly now you're just well we're gonna have we have to throw you there Mm -hmm. how much of it do you think is uh is twitter or or this sort of yeah twitter or social media generally where we've been able to Condense ideas into bite size, rapidly disseminate them. I'm not making Twitter the evil, but there's a, no, no. There's a change in the way media has, and the way we well, communicate.
1: Well, it, it, it is. I mean, you know, I'm very active social media wise, you know, seeing what's going on and doing searches to find out, you know, what mm-hmm. this side is saying or what that side is saying. Um, it's, it's a wonderful tool to have.
2: Definitely. Um,
1: you know, I, I go back to, again, 1984 with no internet <laughs> and them in Israel knowing about Jim Keekstra. Um, you know, to, yeah. to now being able to see worldwide news instantaneously. You know, so things have changed. We have to change the way we consume media. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also become a huge tool. Like in the days before the internet and before social media, in our newsroom meetings, we would have to come up with our own story and you know now 60% of what news organizations do is chase stuff they see on social media um, is that good is it bad I don't know We're we're, we're being presented with stuff instantaneously mm-hmm. and those are stories we choose to pursue and it's easy to make contact with somebody yeah. you know in the past if we had an idea we would have to go knock on a door we would have to see if we could track someone down mm-hmm. you know etc cetera, etc cetera. so so things have totally changed is it good is it bad it's different.
0: Just different. Yeah. Do you does do are the big media conglomerates like Rogers, CBC, whoever else, chorus? I guess are they losing legitimacy, or is there, are they fighting to maintain legitimacy now when anybody can go to any event and report live? Really. Mm, that's like, a
1: really good question. Um, i think there's a number of factors involved in that one is the instantaneousness of of twitter of facebook Mm -hmm. live of Mm -hmm. of people being able to do and say what they want and you know whether they're speaking to their echo their echo chamber or somebody else who's just looking for information that's one thing but another thing is the fact that local media is cutting 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 and you know it used to be um you know in the days of a channel going back to the beginning We had 20 reporters or 18 reporters or whatever it was. So the camera person would be put with a reporter for the day and you would work with that reporter for the day. Mm. You'd put your story together and, you know, do all of those things. Um, And so a lot of stories got told and, you know, Mm. you had to go chase things down. You had to figure out what was news. You had to. But by them cutting and cutting, you know, we're down to what six people now at City T V mm-hmm. and that so we do six stories a day. You know, yeah. we're we're in in the five hours of news we would have you know with bt and and live at five and six o'clock and eleven o'clock you know we had all those hours of news that had to be filled so Mm -hmm. you would cover a lot of stuff so a lot of stuff got done and and now all you can do are the big stories are the main stories and you know you watch cnn now you watch uh, msnbc Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing Mm -hmm. it's they they don't cover a lot of the other important things so have The organizations lost credibility. Um, I think yes, a little bit. Um, Also, has there been mistakes made along the way that have turned people away from media, mm-hmm. possibly. Okay. Um, you know, and and again, it's too easy to just see it on social media. And you know, if mm-hmm. I see a 15-second clip, and I don't have to wait for the six o'clock news anymore. I remember in the old days, mm-hmm. I used to come home and try and watch all four newscasts at the same time. <laughs> you know, you'd have VCRs going and, and stuff like that, because that's the only place you got your news. Mm-hmm. That was it. So, so if you were working on a story, and another news organization was as well, uh. there's winning and losing the story, right? So you wouldn't know till 605 after you saw their story and after you saw the way our story was put together to see who won the story. Hmm. You know, and those days don't happen anymore because now it goes to social media before it goes anywhere else. So there is, except for maybe a rare few cases, there's very few times where you hold on to a story <laughs> until you know it goes to air, because air doesn't matter anymore. The, the only air that matters mm. is social media now. It's true. You know, um, the, it's it's your, my grandparents and my parents that are watching mm-hmm. the six o'clock news. My kids wouldn't know where to find the six o'clock news.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, so... <sighs> Yeah, that's wild. Maybe that's part of the problem then, because the the media giants have had to shift and find their footing and they they choose just the... I guess my question would be, how then do you choose what stories day to day? Like, is that part of the problem? Or like, because you can't cover as many stories, you just got to go to these really sort of top of mind, potentially polarizing issues and nuances and stuff get left behind?
1: well that 's also a good question. Um, you know I think you try and find balance in in mm-hmm. the day you you have to do the topical stuff you can't can 't ignore it mm-hmm. um, you know you have to find a balanced way to do those stories at the end of the day it 's still all about storytelling um, okay. you know and, and every once in a while you see great stories that, that really reiterate and, and bring to light the fact that stories are important and um, that, that never changes. A well-told story is worth its weight in gold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you can see the topical stories all day long. Um, but when you see a good story that, you know, pulls at your heartstrings or, or, you know, gets to a point you hadn't thought about or something like that, that's also our job to do. So mm-hmm. when we try and figure out what stories we're going to do during the day, you know, we address all those things. Is, mm-hmm. is it, what do we have to talk about today? Right. Does anybody have any stories that they've found that, you know, are, are different? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so I don't think we try and, um, tell only a certain kind of story. I think mm-hmm. we like to, um, continue to tell stories. Okay. And, and, um, that's that's important to all the news organizations you know mm-hmm. variety is but is anybody gonna see it you know ah, that, that's, that's a good that's, question
0: too yeah. well I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you like in 25 years of news what what was the moment that you're gonna take with you to the end where you, n- you never forget that moment It changed you or it blew your way
1: Uh there's a couple um, I think the biggest one that that changed me like You know, in the days of working on the murder stories and and the bodies and, you know, Mm. stuff like that, those all have, those take a little piece from you or put a little piece of themselves Mm. inside you. Um, you know, it's it's hard to work on a on a story of a murdered child or something like that without it having an impact of some sort on you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, I did the 06 uh, Stanley Cup run, which was invigorating and exciting, and I did all seven games of the finals. Going to. Um, North Carolina. Oh, really? Yeah, going and so th- I mean that was amazing in in itself because the city was all caught up in that. Um, you know, did a number of of really interesting stories. <laughs> the cat house story with Stacy Brotzel that was a fascinating story. Um, you know, the the stories of, of the four RCMP officers in sure. Merrthorpe. You know, that the way that one came to be for us was is an interesting story as well. The first four soldiers killed in Afghanistan, mm. you know, those right. stories. And and standing on the lawn of one of the wives of one of the dead soldiers mm. and looking at another camera guy from another station and saying This is horrible that we have to do this. And, you know, talking about that. But then, as it turned out, the wife of that dead soldier um, was amazing. Like, she Mm. used the media to make sure that we didn't forget who her husband was and who the other three killed were. And so she understood the significance of of the media being there and where it could lead to. Mm. And um, so, you know, we were all going to leave. And then at about 5.05, she comes out and held a mini scrum on her step wow. and I'll never forget that you know where else we're, st- we're standing there all day and all of a sudden she comes out and says okay let's let's do this and it's just like okay let's do this but I think the biggest one for me to answer your question was going to New York oh uh, right after September 11th okay um <clears throat> you know that that to me as a news person was unbelievable the fact that all these things happened in real time right in front of us you know Mm -hmm. and the impact Mm -hmm. that it had and and you know so it just to me it was it was our generation's kennedy moment you know where where what do we do what how do we get through this what you know what kind of stories do we need to do and that that type of thing and i remember on the friday my boss chris duncan called me in his office and said well do you want to go and i said absolutely and so they sent me and a reporter from Calgary, you know, a grizzled old reporter named Mike McCourt, um, <laughs> who had spent some time in New York before. And we went to New York on the first, the first day we could fly out, because wow. you know, they, they shut down uh, air traffic. Right. And so I flew to Toronto and met Mike there, and we sat in the lounge and had a couple drinks and <laughs> talked about what we're about to go through. Right. And we went and spent a week in New York, six days after it happened
0: what'd you see it,
1: it it you know of all these stories that that we see again that that you know you're you're you hold a little bit of them with you that to me had the biggest impact because of the things we did see because mm-hmm. of the people we spoke to um you know we saw uh, there are the images that we would see you know of the destruction there we saw that it's half a block away you know smelt it heard the sirens wow. um, talked to the people saw the the pain in their voices saw the the fire holes with the you know flowers and the cards and Mm. and the the fire engines and stuff like that 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 were stuck down there that had you know hearts and stuff and school kids all over them you know just so many stories that that whole week was it was life-changing i mean Mm -hmm. for me that that's that that was the most not important but it stuck with me the most Mm -hmm. of anything i did like it it was really hard to let some of those images go you know like walking down the street there was an army guy with um 10 pairs of boots over his shoulder okay so i'm shooting this with my camera and then and then i say to him what what are you doing and he said well these guys that are they go in there and spend eight hours looking for for bodies and people Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. they burns the soles of their boots work boots out so they go through a pair of work boots every shift you know just just things like that Um, going to Harlem there was a multi-denominate excuse me a multi-denominational gathering that was actually set up before um, September 11th and they went ahead with it anyway and you know going to this square in Harlem and seeing them singing and it was just—it was staggering, you know. And the faces, some of the still, some of the shots I got of, mm. of people are, are just etched in my mind. Mm. I remember, one day we were down at uh, where it was happening, or down at the at the site, and I'd found a spot that people would come around the corner mm. and see it for the first time you know, things, things that we had seen. So everybody waited, you know, everybody was on their own terms, right? They say New York is a city of 15 million stories, while well, a city of 30 million stories because everybody has their 9-11 story as well. And, you know, so everybody in their own time would go down and see the site. And so to set up in that place and see these see the reaction of people when they saw it for the first time you know again i'll, I'll ne- i can't get those images out of my mind so right. so i think cool if, if i had to sum up the biggest story i've worked with some wonderful people along mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. um some very very talented people um, but that's the one that that stuck with me
0: do you have a sense that maybe we're still experiencing the shockwaves from 9 11 20 years on in our culture maybe some of this this real racism, because there was a real, there was an uptick in racism not long after that, once mm-hmm. it became clear who these people were or who, who we were being led to believe they were anyway.
1: Yes, who were, yes, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's perfectly fair. I yeah. think it's it's fair to say that for sure. That was, you know, did that start to open the doors a little bit or move the rocks away from the caves? Um, possibly it did, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, that, that certainly gave people a reason to be, you know, publicly hostile to a certain type of person. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's that's a good point. Maybe we are.
0: Interesting. Because my memory, I was in grade seven when that happened, Mm -hmm. 9-11. But my memory of the 90s was like even the way media and the way just the general sort of zeitgeist or the ethos of the 90s was one of fairly carefreeness and then a lot of anxiety socially came with Y2K and then 9/11 and it never it never really went back to how it was in the 90s you know and then everything just ramped from there to, to now here we are 20 years on and it's like it's uh it's uncomfortable sometimes just to engage in the culture you know it's some of it just feels gross some of it feels and for me, the pinnacle was on the 20th when we were standing in, in the, on those legislative grounds and it was like, anything could happen right now. Some of these guys, one guy could be strapped. Someone could mm-hmm. have a knife. Someone, mm-hmm. this could completely go to hell. And, but, I don't know. I, I guess that's just a feeling I've been working on.
1: Well, I think it was a perfect storm, right? Because, again, you had in that time um, the upsurge of the internet and of social yeah. media. And, you know, the fact that we saw 9-11 happen in real time, Um, that, you know, all of those things, I think led to the perfect storm. You know, if you go back to the Kennedy assassination, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, uh, things came out, but it was all so speculative. And, you know, do we really know what happened that day? I don't know that we do, you know, um, because there weren't a million cameras around. That spot was chosen specifically because it was a dead spot for the TV cameras. Um, really? Yeah. yeah. And, mm. you know, so, so there's all of these things. All of these things have, have changed since then. You know, again, to see 9-11 happen in real time, to see that second plane go in in real time, um, you know, stuff like that. And to mm-hmm. see, you know, the, the camera guys down there and the reporters down there doing their thing, just like we saw, you know, during the summer with the BLM movement, mm-hmm. you know, those reporters down there reporting live. That was fascinating stuff. I loved that stuff. The mm. The courage of those guys to be down there telling the stories and bringing to us what is actually going on Mm -hmm. because as we talked about earlier uh, today we have to tell these stories the only way anything changes is by telling these stories and by the networks having a the courage to ask you know their reporters and camera guys to go down there mm-hmm. and be the courage of those guys to go down there and do that. You know, I know just speaking for our company here, mm-hmm. our safety was the utmost concern in all of this. I mean, mm-hmm. there's meetings you know above us that, that we have no idea about, right. you know, um, trying to figure out the best way to keep us safe and the best way to tell stories, um, you know, and, and it's always if you feel unsafe get the hell out of there. But I've also been doing this for 25 years. Mm. So that's how stories are told is being down there in the trenches, you know, and that's it doesn't get told anywhere else. And that's, you know, we had we had a news producer and an assignment editor who always said the story doesn't happen in the newsroom. The story happens in the field. Mm. And and, you know, those words stick to me to this day because Mm. that's so true. That's where the stories happen.
0: How much longer are you going to keep doing this?
1: Uh, until bitcoin reaches uh, the price i (laughs) needed to reach um i I don't know you know that that's that's a good question Uh, to me i think it's all or nothing uh i'm still enjoying it Mm -hmm. and again the reason i moved on in the first place was i wasn't enjoying it Mm -hmm. i think these are historical times um you know that's not lost on me the fact that that what we're seeing um, is one day going whether it be COVID or whether it be these these types of events that we're talking about? Mm-hmm. These are life changing for a lot of people. These are cultural changing. These are societal changing. And and as as a storyteller, as a news person, these are the times you want to be in the trenches. So I don't have an answer to that. I don't no know. worries. Um, you know if if uh, if I wake up you know too many days in a row and it's I don't want to do this Mm -hmm. or it's not fun anymore or or we're not doing things you know the the way the best way we could be doing them that's you know it's you always have ideas on ways we could be doing things differently but i also have to remember that i also grew up in the days when we had 40 people working you know just in in the newsroom between shooters and and reporters that Mm -hmm. doesn't include the editors and and the writers and all that stuff we don't have that anymore you know so so for me it's a huge learning curve on trying to uh, not get too discouraged by the fact that we can't go to all these events in the fact we can't tell all the stories we just have to pick the ones we choose and tell mm-hmm. them the best way we can
0: right on rod well you're someone who's given me a lot of you know experience and knowledge and opportunity and learned a lot from you so i'm glad we could sit down and have this conversation
1: Thank you, it's been enjoyable. It's, uh, it's, it's fun to talk about our business. I think we have an amazing business, with lots of great people in it. And again, it's about the stories, it's about telling the stories. That's the important thing. And we are just a conduit for that.
0: Right on. Well said, Rod. Thanks again, you, you brought the heat tonight. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the North Bank Media Podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe as well and leave a five-star review.